Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, verses 17 through 24, as we continue in our study of the gospel of John. John chapter 5, 17 through 24. If you were here last week, uh, you know, the pastor Brandon picked back up in the gospel of John and went through chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And so uh, today we're going to just continue to press in and uh, just press, uh, move forward with uh, this as we uh, really come to understand uh, some very important details of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So John chapter 5, verses 17 through 24, I'll be preaching from the ESV. If you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, I encourage you to turn uh, to the passage so you can follow along. We have some copies of God's Word in the back. If you need one, you're invited to take one of those. Keep it. It's our gift to you. But John chapter 5, 17 through 24, I'm going to read this for us, and then we will pray and ask for God's help. John chapter 5, verse 17, would you hear the word of God? But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he but has passed from death to life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness in giving us your word. We pray, Father, that this time would be for your glory, for our good, that Christ would be exalted, that sinners would come to repentance, that those that are high, and mighty in their own mind will be brought to repentance as they see the majesty of Jesus Christ. We need your help in this moment. We ask what we know not you would teach us and what we are not you would make us and what we have not you would give us by your grace, for your glory. And God's people said, amen. amen. So there's a rule in aviation called the 1 in 60 rule, which states that if your initial heading is off by just one degree, that for every 60 miles you travel, you will be off one mile from your intended destination. 
So basically, if you take off in an airplane and you're headed to a specific place, and if your degree is just one way off, north, south, east, or west, you will then miss your destination by one mile for every 60 miles traveled. That's a pretty significant divergence. And I assume that we would all agree that based on the one in 60 rule, it is essential to ensure that everyone that's involved in getting a plane from one point to another, starting correctly, is pretty important. Starting correctly in the right direction really matters. In the same way, when it comes to navigating the created world and all that is in it, a right understanding of Jesus Christ is essential if we are to find ourselves reaching a desirable destination. See, Jesus Christ is the head of all creation. Everything that exists is under his reign, his authority, his rule. Colossians 1.16 reminds us of this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. So brothers and sisters, there's nothing in existence that can rightly ignore the reality of Jesus Christ. And because of this reality, our aim must be one of intentionality and specificity when it comes to our understanding of Jesus. The most crucial and critical detail in rightly understanding Jesus' existence is the fact that Jesus Christ himself is God. The divinity of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the incarnation itself. There are many mainstream false religions that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, such as Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, to name some of the most popular, Islam as well, most common in our context and culture. But unfortunately, it's not just the false religions that portray and proclaim a false Jesus. It's not just those that would claim to be the ones that have a different understanding that get the deity of Jesus wrong. See, unfortunately, there are many in the church that would proclaim to be professing Christians that actually miss the main idea, the main complexity, the main truth that we need in understanding Jesus Christ. Uh, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research team up every couple of years, and they do a survey called the State of Theology. I encourage, encourage you to Google it, look it up. Uh, you can find uh, just the, the, uh, their uh, findings there. And their most, most recent survey was completed in January of 2022, so uh, the beginning of this year. In this survey, they uh, surveyed uh, over 3,000 self professing evangelical Christians. So over 3,000 self-professing evangelical Christians. And they asked them some very fundamental, some very basic 
questions that any orthodox Christian would affirm. This year's findings reported that 43% of the participants agreed with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43%. Let that sink in. Nearly half of those surveyed that call themselves Christians denied the deity of Christ. That is a startling percentage indeed. But unfortunately, it isn't surprising. Redefining Jesus has become a popular sport amongst many pseudo-scholars and theologians. New books are published. New ideas are regularly perpetuated that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Many of these false teachers build their argument by saying that Jesus never claimed to be God himself. Maybe you've heard that yourself. So what does Jesus say? Like, how do we come to understand who Jesus is from the words of Jesus himself? Well, here in John chapter 5, we see one of the clearest examples of Jesus Christ's personal declaration that he himself is indeed divine. He is God. Now, remember what's happening here in this story as we pick up in verse 17. Jesus has just healed a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Uh, this man has now been confronted by the uh, Jewish religion leaders. They've been con- he's been confronted. They, they've said, hey, why are you doing what you're doing? You've, you're working on the Sabbath. And essentially this man says, like, hey, it's not my fault. It's, it's this guy, Jesus. He's the one that healed me, and he's the one who told me to walk. And then their anger has turned from the recently healed man to now Jesus Christ. They're just denying the whole fact that this man who has been known to be disabled for 38 years is walking now. Like we're, but we're angry. <laughs> we're mad that he's picked up his little mat and has moved it and is apparently breaking the Sabbath. We read in verse 16, right? This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So at this point of our story, this point of John's gospel, Jesus is being challenged. He's faced with opposition. Our text says he is being persecuted here. So we must ask the question, how does Jesus respond? What does Jesus do in this situation? Well, one, he doesn't try to de-escalate the situation. He, He doesn't try to explain their misunderstanding of the Sabbath. He does that other places, but not here. In fact, he doesn't even talk about the Sabbath at all here. Instead, Jesus heightens their anger by boldly proclaiming the fact that he is God. He is God himself. He boldly declares his divinity. 
And in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 5, I, we see five declarations of Jesus' divinity. It's five declarations of his divinity. I'll give them to you. Uh, so if you're taking notes, you can write them down, and then we'll go back, and you can make notes under each heading. But the five ways that Jesus declares his divinity is one, in essence, two, in action, three, in power, four, in authority, and five, in honor. Essence, action, power, authority, and honor. Let me just say on the front of this, this is a monumental section of Scripture. This is an extraordinary portion of truth here. I mean, nowhere else in the Bible do we have a clear description of Christology coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. Like, the claim that he is God is found right here. In terms of Christ speaking of his own divinity, this is the magnum opus of the Bible. It's where he makes his greatest claim. So let's look look at verse 17 as we see Jesus declares divinity in essence here. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. So very simply put here, Jesus says, I work as God works. My, my father and I are of the same essence. Like, we do the same things. And because God works continuously, I work continuously. See, the common, common Jewish understanding affirmed that God was always working. He, he was only, always holding the universe together. If God stops working, then guess what, brothers and sisters? The universe falls apart. Somebody asked, well, what about Genesis 2, 2 through 3, right? Where it says that God rested on the seventh day. Well, he did rest. He took rest from the work of creation. He, he rested in his work of putting the world together. But God never quits working. The sun rises Grass grows, rain falls, rivers flow. God is giving mercy and kindness continuously. God's providential work never ceases. He is God. One early Jewish philosopher rightly said, God never ceases to work. Just as it is the property of fire to burn and of snow to be cold, so it is the property of God to work. God is always working. And here Jesus says, just as God has been working since the beginning of time, he's he's never stopped. I too am constantly working. He says, I'm not restricted by the Sabbath like mankind, because guess what? I am not mankind. Although different in person, I am the same essence of the Father. 
Recall another time when Jesus spoke of the Sabbath in Mark 2, 2, or 2, 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, is Lord over even the Sabbath, meaning that Jesus Christ is above the Sabbath because guess what? Jesus Christ is God. Notice also that Jesus says, my father here. This is familial language that speaks of a unique father-son relationship that would have been unthinkable for any Jew to say. He is not suggesting that he has followed God's example. He's not saying that uh, he's just seen some good stuff. He's saying that God is his actual father, the only begotten son. Now, this clearly further aggravates his opposition here. And we know this, and we know that the point of Jesus' words here are just that. Look at verse 18. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself, look at the text, making himself equal with God. So they understood Jesus' statements to mean that he is saying, I am God. This is a clear passage for anyone that engages with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or uh, others that may come to your door and say, hey, let's talk about uh, your conversion to Mormonism or your conversion to becoming a Jehovah's Witness because they do not believe this truth, this fundamental truth of Christianity that, Jesus is God. And here it is very clear that that's what Jesus is communicating. So now things are escalated to a point where the Jews, they're not just persecuting him. They're not just in opposition, but they want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus. But Jesus does not retreat. He does not change his message here. He doesn't somehow like try to appease the opposition here. He continues by declaring his divinity in his action. Our second observation is action here. Verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Stop there. Here we read and we see that Jesus says, My action is God's action. God's action is my action. Jesus declares complete unity and action between the Father and the Son. He says the Son can do nothing on his own accord. We work together here. Now, this does not mean that he lacks 
power or that he even wants to do things on his own accord. Rather, this speaks of the unity that the triune God has within himself. There's no competition or debate. There's no arguing between the triune God. There aren't various ideas or plans of action here. There is complete unity in the action of God being facilitated by different persons of the Trinity to accomplish the same goal. The Father plans our salvation. The Son purchases our salvation. The Spirit preserves our salvation. And here, Jesus says that this unity is based in love between the Father and the Son, a a love that could only take place in the Godhead, in the perfection that is needed. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that your greatest security of salvation is not in God's love for you, although that is true. God loves you far beyond you could far beyond anything you could ever comprehend. We are so undeserving of God's love, and yet He loved the world so much that He sends His Son to die to purchase a people for Himself. That's great news, but it's better news that the Father loves the Son. And he loves him in a perfect way that assures that those people that he died for will not be lost. He says, I love you so much that what I have given to you will be yours forever. Revelation 19, 7 reminds us here, let us rejoice and exult And give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Who was the bride of Christ? The church, Christians. So God has prepared a bride to present to Jesus, and he will not let that bride fail. You are safe and secure in not only God's love for you, but more profoundly in God's love for God. You're safe. You're secure. You can be guaranteed that if you are his, you will endure to the end. Jesus also says that They will see greater works. They will see greater works than what they have just witnessed, meaning the the healing of this man. He tells them, hey, look, that was great. That was awesome. But what you will see is going to be greater than that. This is likely describing the raising of the dead, which is mentioned in verse 21. And where we see here our third declaration of divinity, which is a declaration of power. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
So Jesus here says, I have the same power as God does to raise the dead and give life to those whom I choose. He says, don't ask me what I'm doing on the Sabbath. I have power that you do not understand. I am God. He says, I have power that you do not possess. Who are you to challenge me? This speaks of Christ's power to give life bodily and spiritually at his will. These Jewish leaders would have known that raising the dead and giving life were prerogatives of God and God alone. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. And here's what God says. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2.6 simply reminds us the Lord, Yahweh here, kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. God alone has this power. It is only God. Later in John chapter 11, we read Jesus' own words where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, speaking of a physical death here, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked, do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, this is an extraordinary claim that only God can make. Here, Jesus Christ says, I have life-giving power that I employ at my will. He's not restrained by anything that man has put in place or man does. He says, just as he chose one man out of the crowd of invalids at Bethesda, he is freely choosing others at his will as well. Jesus does what he wants to do. He has power to ensure those whom he wishes are secure in the promise to be raised again to new life. Now, there are signs of this promise, right? Like, as we now live in the reality that we are saved, that we, are, we have been regenerated, we have been made new, there's signs of our salvation. We're born again, just as Jesus tells Nicodemus. What must you do to be saved? Well, you, you got to be born again. There's something that happens now. But we have a greater assurance that our final hope is to be with God forever. Church, I have to ask you, I mean, do, do you really believe that today? Do you truly believe that the Jesus that you call Lord has this type of power? Do you believe in this power? Do you believe that Jesus has truly given you new life? Has he changed the old to new? Will he finalize the resurrection promise 
when we are raised again to live in sinless perfection with one another and with God forever. See, when we get a glimpse of that reality, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we evangelize. It it changes the way we understand the world around us. We really understand that we are new creatures. We have been given something that is foreign to anything we could do on our own, only given to us by the power of Jesus Christ himself. It changes everything. Brothers and sisters, that's a glorious reality that is all based on the power of our Savior, Jesus. Then we see our fourth claim here, and it's a claim of authority in verse 22. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has been given all judge, but has given all judgment to the Son. So here we read that in the economy of redemption, the Father has honored the Son by committing the work of judgment into his hands. J.C. Ryle puts it simply as he says, he that died for sinners is he that will judge them. The one that died will then in turn judge the world. In Acts 17, Luke records a sermon Paul preached in Athens. And in verse 30 and 31, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So listen, there's a day coming when Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will judge the world in righteousness. Meaning those who do not have righteousness, which can only be found in whom? Jesus Christ will be judged accordingly. We must be found in Christ if we are to pass this judgment. And that is a staggering reality that every human being must reconcile in their mind. I will be judged by Jesus for all of my deeds. Let me just exhort, encourage you to remember this. You will either look to Christ in love and accept his work on your behalf and receive forgiveness, or you will look to him in disdain and receive the judgment that you deserve. There's no other option. That is the reality of all humanity. We don't know when this day will come, but the Bible promises that it will. And here Jesus says that I am the one who judges on behalf of the Godhead because the Father has appointed me to do so. 
you got to be thinking, right? At this point, Jesus' audience was likely perplexed and outraged. I mean, here they have this common Jew from Nazareth, this carpenter by trade, standing here telling them, like, I'm going to judge you. I'm the one that is going to exercise complete judgment on you on behalf of God himself. What a claim, right? I wonder if they thought back to the story of Joseph in the latter part of Genesis. Think of Joseph as he, Joseph as he stands before his brothers and says, I've had this dream and I'm going to be lifted up and then I will exercise some dominion over you. And his brothers get what? They get furious. They get angry. So much they plot to kill him, but instead they, they sell him into slavery. But what happens? Joseph uses his power for good. He grants them forgiveness. And such is the case for any who would turn to Jesus today. That there is forgiveness found. If you are in here, brother or sister, that maybe you have rejected Christ for many years, forgiveness can be found today for all who turn to him for salvation. As the authority that Jesus has, he can grant forgiveness at his will. I pray if that's not your reality today, I pray that it will be. We see then that the authority given to Jesus is meant to lead to honor for Jesus as we see our final declaration here in verses 23 and 24. It goes on to say in 23 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus says here, like, I deserve the same honor that you give God the Father. He, if you don't do this, like if, you, if you don't honor me, I'm telling you, you, you don't honor God. These religious leaders had built a their reputation, their lives around being people of high piety and high reverence for God, right? I mean, that's what they were known for. They were the ones that really took things serious. They had a high view of God. They honored him in every single thing. But here they have God himself standing in front of them, and they are treating him as a common criminal for healing a man that had been disabled for 38 years. I mean, what blind eyes do these men have? But such is the same for all who claim to love God in our day, but, to not, but deny that Jesus is God himself. It's the same reality that we are faced with. We have the scriptures that clearly communicate the reality that Jesus is God. And those that do not affirm this reality are said to dishonor God himself. And listen, the Trinity is a complex profundity that we will never fully understand this side of eternity. 
We're not going to fully understand how this all works together in the Godhead. But God's word is clear that our God is three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a clear truth that we must accept and understand as much as we are able to now. But to reject this reality, to reject the divinity of Christ or the triune God himself by any sum is to reject God in totality. Cannot have one without the other. But praise God, there is a wonderful promise for all who will receive God's truth. God's word here in verse 24, look there with me. It says, truly, truly, meaning like this is serious. This is important. Pay attention here. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, the judgment we spoke of earlier, but is passed from death to life. Here, believers are promised to have eternal life. Like they have it. He has it. This is a present reality, brothers and sisters. We are promised that this present reality provides assurance for the day of final judgment. Here, Jesus simply says, believe what I have said. Believe what I have said, and you will have life eternal. I mean, he doesn't give us a bunch of hoops to jump through. There isn't a long list of complexities that we must do and understand. There isn't a laundry list that he throws at us that says, here you go. He says, believe. Believe, and you will have life. This is familiar to the thesis statement in John's gospel, right? John 20, 31. He even says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The question is, what do you believe, friend? What do you believe about Jesus? Popular quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, uh, that actually had been communicated in different ways for a long time before he picked it up. But he brings his reader into his logical understanding, his logical reasoning of how he came to understand that Jesus was God. And I'm going to read this for us before a final closing thought and prayer. But here's what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He goes on to say, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He is not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then he goes on. He says, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. End quote. Brothers and sisters, what we think of Jesus matters. We cannot be swept away by careless or erroneous misconceptions and interpretations of Jesus Christ. We must not allow ourselves to be influenced by those who perpetuate a Jesus that is anything void of God himself. Children, teens in the room, everyone, we must accept and embrace this reality. We must get this right. Just a minor deviation of one degree in navigation can lead to a major difference in our destination that can lead to destruction. Such, too, is the eternal warning for us today. CCF, may we be a people that get Jesus right, that stand on the truth and proclaim the truth of who Jesus Christ is truly is. Fully God, fully man, the divine in human form. I mean, he is the only one that could stand in our place as the perfect substitute for our sins because of this reality. Listen, those that deny Jesus's divinity void the perfection needed for salvation, thus denying the gospel itself. You must have Jesus he is the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the perfect for the imperfect, God on behalf of man. See, Jesus steps in. He mediates on man's behalf. And the only one that can mediate with God is God himself. So let us marvel at this glorious reality. Let us grow in our affection, our admiration, for Jesus Christ, the person, the work, the all-sufficient Savior. And let us be a people proclaiming to the world around us that Jesus Christ is God. We pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your kindness, your mercy. We thank you, God, that you have provided a way to atone for our sin. I pray that if that reality is lost on anyone in this space today, I pray that you would work in their heart, drawing them to yourself through 
the work of the Spirit, making new their hearts, opening their eyes to the glorious reality that Jesus Christ is indeed God. He is who he says he is. So, Father, we pray for all that are here. We pray for these children, as noisy as they are. And we pray, Lord, that you would let that noise become voices that sing praises and glory to your great name, that you would grant them salvation early. They would know you and love you and come to saving faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.